So the season of Advent is upon us. Advent is the fancy word that means arrival. So when we celebrate Advent, we're celebrating the arrival of God in the flesh 2,000-something years ago here on earth. I'm willing to bet most of us in here know the story pretty good, right? No room at the end, virgin birth, and born in a, in a stable, born in, in a lowly manner, yet the king of the world arrived and the angels made the announcement. The shepherds heard it. A couple years later, due to contrary to popular belief, the, the wise men arrived and gave gifts. They weren't there right there in that moment, but that's not a super important detail. We might get into it a little bit, especially if Rob ever gets the mic. Uh, this Christmas. We'll hear all about it. He's got some good stuff to talk about when it comes to the nativity and, and uh, the birth of Jesus. But today, I'm launching this Advent series and this Advent season with uh, talking about love. So there is a traditional order to talk about peace, joy, hope, and love. But we're going to break tradition a bit because as I was dwelling on this season, one of the things I feel like the Holy Spirit was showing me is a progression between these attributes, between these things, peace, joy, hope, and love that arrived on earth with Jesus. Obviously, there was already a form of peace, a form of joy, a form of love, and a form of hope. But man, nothing like the peace, joy, love, and hope we have in Jesus. Nothing even close. It's almost a different animal altogether. But as I was praying about this season, I just heard the Lord tell me that when my people, when you, when I, when we understand and have a deep knowledge of the love of God and how much he loves us and how he loves us, we won't be able to help but walk in peace. We won't even be able to walk in anything other than peace because when we know God is on our side, you know what thought follows that? Then who can be against me? And when things in this world come against us, when the, our great enemy that really is nothing more than a toothless, authorityless, weaponless little mouth, right, that can still talk and lie to us, we don't have to give him ear, we don't have to listen. But when he comes against us or when anything else comes against us, when we know that God is on our side, because when we understand his love, we won't walk around with guilt and condemnation. We won't walk around thinking we've been left alone. We'll walk around knowing that no matter what, our Father loves us. He's on our side. We won't be able to help but walk in peace. And when we're operating out of peace, our mind will have enough capacity to begin to hope, right? Some people, I know if you're in this church, I, I hope, my hope is that you hope all the time. I have a plaque on my wall a good friend of mine made uh, a couple years ago, our big phrase for the year, at least in my heart, was get your hopes hopier, right? And uh, she had it made, and it's on my wall in my office, get your hopes hopier. I know that sounds weird, but it's the opposite of what the world says, right? The world says, don't get your hopes up, you won't be disappointed, right? That is a lie from the enemy. That is what the enemy wants, because hope is actually what leads our faith. If you wonder why your faith hasn't been operating lately, you're not letting yourself hope. Right? Hebrews says that faith is the substance of things hoped for. In other words, hope, right, is when you're seeing something, but it has no substance. It's not, it's not in existence yet. I'm hoping this happens, but faith is the substance of what you're hoping for. So if you're a person of faith, and how do you know if you're a person of faith? Well, that's a gift of the Holy Spirit. 
It's not your own faith that's even on the inside of you. The Bible says that it's the faith of Jesus that is inside the believers. So if you're a Christian, you got the faith of Jesus on the inside of you. If it's not operating, that means you're not hoping. You got to begin to hope and you got to let yourself hope. And when your mind says, oh, don't go there, you'll be disappointed again. You got to tell your mind, and that's not what the Bible says. That's not what the word says. And as you hope, and your faith is going to begin to move. And when you see your faith moving, you are going to, just like you won't be able to help yourself but to walk in peace, you won't be able to help it, but you'll walk in joy, right? You won't have to force yourself to think about the good things. You won't have to force yourself to play the glad game. You won't have to sit down and say, okay, things are going wrong, but I'm going to focus on what's going right and what the Lord has done in my life to experience joy. There's nothing wrong with that. And if you're in a season right now where you have to on purpose sit down and put away the things that are going wrong and, and, and on purpose think about what the Lord is doing in your life, that's okay. Do it. But my belief, my hope, my, my prayer is that as we go through this season of Advent, man, joy is going to begin to flow out of you on accident, even more than on purpose. But it's going to happen with the progression. We've got to understand the love of God. Then we're going to walk around in peace. With peace in operation, we'll have the capacity to hope. And when we hope, that faith, the same faith that rose Jesus from the dead, the same faith that, that walked on water, the same faith that Jesus used to calm the winds and the rain, the same faith that he used when he broke the bread and handed out the fish and just kept breaking the bread and handing out the fish and then kept breaking the bread and handing out the fish and that took up 12 baskets of leftovers from one basket of fish that fed five to 10,000 people. The same faith that did that will within you begin to move and operate and your joy will overflow. Man, I believe that with all my heart. I'm getting my hopes up for you this season. I'm getting my hopes up for myself and my family this season. I'm really good at hoping and I hope that I get even better. Why not? Why not? We're called to go from glory to glory. But you got to understand the love of God and it's already been read here this morning in the uh, Advent, in the lighting of the candle, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Those are the attributes of agape love. What does that mean? That's the kind of love that God operates in, agape love. But not only that, 1 John 4, 17 says that as Jesus, God in the flesh is in this world, so are you. That means you, you and I can operate in agape love, Right? We can operate in all of those attributes in 1 Corinthians 13. Patience, kindness. Uh, Sharon laughed a little bit for some reason when she said love is not irritable. I don't know. Maybe that's something you guys are dealing with, Dr. Potter. I don't know. We all deal with that. Man, how about that? I mean, let's be honest. Some of us had irritable days this week. It doesn't mean that that love isn't in us. It just means we're not choosing to operate in it, right? If I don't go to my house and turn the heat on. It's not like my house doesn't have heat, but it's going to get cold unless I turn the heat on. I got the heat and I got the capacity to heat. I got to set the thermostat. Man, that's like believers. You've got the capacity to walk around and stand against irritability when your mind gets irritable, to stand against lack of patience when somebody's trying your patience. You can always choose kindness and usually have to choose that over being right 
but it's better than being right. Being kind is better. Choose kindness. Who cares if you're wrong? Let somebody else win an argument every once in a while. Let them win. I used to let my dad win at video games because he was not a good loser. My dad thought he was the best at video games. He never beat me once, honestly. But I didn't like, uh, I didn't like the way he acted when he lost. So I just let him win. However, I've never let my son win once. He's only ever beat me. He's only ever beat me honestly. He's not in the room to defend himself, but it's only been like once or twice. Even though he's so much better at video games than me. But love is in you, perfect love. It's on the inside. 1 John 4, 8 tells us, anyone who does not love does not know God, for God is love. So those attributes of love in 1 Corinthians 13, it's not just how love operates, it's how God operates. I, I do this all the time, and if you've been at our church for any length of time, you've heard me say this. But when 1 Corinthians 13 says love is kind, you can replace that with God is kind. Love is patient, God is patient. Love is not jealous or boastful, God is not jealous or boastful. Love is not proud or rude, God is not proud or rude. Love is not demanding, God is not demanding. Love forgets when it's wronged. God forgets when he's wrong. That's what forgiveness, part of the way he forgives us. He says, I won't remember your sins any longer. Love weeps at injustice. God weeps at injustice. Love rejoices when truth prevails. God rejoices when truth prevails. Love trusts. God trusts. Have you ever thought about this? God trusts you. He's instilled his spirit in you. Talk about trust. I won't let my kids drive my guitar around town, right? God put his spirit in you. I, I was coming to church the other day. I thought I could just put my guitar in her car. She can drive it there. You know what? I'm going to put my guitar in my car that I'm driving. She was in the other car, right? But I'm like, I'm not going to put my guitar in her car. That's crazy. God put his spirit in you. God put his spirit in you. Love, trust, God, trust. Love perseveres, God perseveres. Love protects, God protects. Love hopes, God hopes. Think about that. Somehow, this is like, a, 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 uh, this will show our limited capacity to understand things here on this plane of existence. How can the one who has seen the end from the beginning still hope for things? I'm not sure. It's almost like, well, you just know. But you know what? He's actually hopeful. God hopes. Love never fails, God never fails. Every time I read 1 Corinthians 13, I take the time to read, love is patient, God is patient. And furthermore, 1 John 4, 17, as Jesus is, so are we in this world. That means you have all those attributes. So why not? I am patient. I am kind. I am never jealous, proud, or rude. Why not? Go down the list. You can operate in those things. I'm going to take time today, right now. What I want to do is focus on Jesus. God in the flesh. I've said this a few weeks ago. I'll say it again. If you want perfect theology, look at the life of Jesus. That is perfect theology. God in the flesh responding to creation in the flesh is perfect theology. If you see Jesus healing sickness and not passing it out, well, you know what? That means God heals sickness. He ain't the cause. John 10, 10, enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. I've come to give life and life abundantly. We can insert what we see in the life of Jesus into our theology 
and be confident. That's perfect theology every time. And as he is in this world, so are we. So what we're going to do, we're going to behold the Lamb of God. You become what you behold. That's what the word says. When you look at something long enough, that's what you become. Like the people that get dogs, and like after 10 years, you see a person, you're like, man, you look just like your dog. You and that dog look just alike. Y'all know who people I'm talking about. Or your husband and wife. Lisa and I dress alike on accident like five times a week. One of us will come out of our closet, and it's usually Lisa, will look at me and say, nope, either you're changing or I'm changing. And I'm pretty goofy. I'm cheesy. I'm like, it's cool. We're dressing alike now. Like, people know we go together. She's like, I'm taking off the Doc Martens or you're taking off the Doc Martens. You got to either take off that plaid shirt or I'm taking off this plaid shirt. We dress alike on accident so often. What lady? I don't know. Lisa, she's talking to me from the front row. She said, tell them. We don't know if this lady was making fun of us or, or, uh, or, or giving us a real compliment, but we spent an exciting evening at Walmart a few weeks ago. Judah, it was a, this is a 40-something-year-old a Friday night right here with teenagers. Judah had to be dropped off at a party that was like 40 minutes away from our house, and the party was like an hour long. So we chose to spend our hour at Walmart, right? And it was great. We had fun. We walked down the aisles. We, we, uh, I don't even think we bought anything. But as we were walking out of Walmart, dressed alike in our plaid shirts, somebody from across the parking lot said, ooh, hot couple wearing matching plaid. And we don't know if she was making fun or giving us an honest compliment. I took it as a compliment. Lisa thought she was making fun. I gave Lisa a high five. I was like, we still got it. She said, she's making fun of us. I don't know. The jury's still out on that one. My point is you become what you behold, and we are going to behold the Lamb of God. We're going to spend time today beholding Jesus acting out these acts of love in the flesh. There's examples of him using every attribute in the word. So let's just start here. Let's just jump into this. What does agape love look like? Well, let's look to his life. 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7. I'm actually using the Passion Translation. It's a little bit different than what Sharon and Tom read, and it's a little bit different than what I was just quoting. I believe, I think when I quote 1 Corinthians 13, I think I, I, think I know it in the New Living, maybe. Um, is the translation I have memorized. But, but here we go in the Passion Translation. I love this. 13 verse 4, love is large and incredibly patient. Man, that's good. The disciples saw Jesus work miracle after miracle. And one of my favorite spots, because I relate to this so much, is as he is walking on water and they're beginning to feel some peace and relief from looking at this storm thinking they're going to die. They see Jesus walking on the water, and the Bible says they were amazed. And it's like, oh, yeah, I'd be amazed too if I saw Jesus walking on water. But it doesn't say that to give them props. It says that because it's like it literally follows up by saying they were amazed that he was walking on water because they didn't consider the miracle of the loaves and fishes. So here's the timeline. Jesus is on the shore. There's five to 10,000 hungry people. He has a few fish and a few loaves of bread. He feeds all of them with those loaves and bread. The disciples watched it happen. They leave that moment. They get on a boat. Jesus is not on the boat. 
a storm comes, they see him walking on water, and it says they were amazed because they didn't consider the miracle they had just seen. In other words, man, if we are amazed by the goodness of God, if we're amazed when a miracle happens, it's simply because we're not considering who he is in our lives. We're not considering our own testimony. And, and, and you know, your personal testimony is one thing, but listen, every word in this book is your testimony. If this isn't as personal to you as the things you've actually lived through, then you don't have a, a, a real relationship with the word of God yet, but you can have one. Just pick it up and start putting it in your heart. It's that simple. They didn't consider who he was, so they were amazed, yet with all the patience in the world, even though these guys would see miracle after miracle and then still not understand how they were going to get out of a situation. Another thing that happened after this was Jesus says uh, something about food later and they're like, oh man, we don't have enough food. They've already seen him multiply food at this point a couple different times and they're like, oh, he's mad because we don't have enough food. Like a very human way of thinking, right? But they didn't consider him, yet he always, with all the patience, responded to them in love, and that's the way he responds to you. Peter denied Jesus three times at the cross, and how did Jesus respond to that? He called him out of a boat after his resurrection, cooked for him. Does that sound like maybe what, what David, part of what he foresaw in the past, you prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemy? In the presence of Peter's doubt, in the presence of his denial, Jesus prepared a table for him and said, you know what, let's just eat. They didn't even talk about it. He just said, do you love me? Three times, feed my sheep. Do you love me? You know I love you. So many times I think to, to this day I get into this thought process like, man, God's going to give me a hard talking to about that mess up. But really he just prepares a table in the presence of whatever it is because he loves me that much. He loves you that much. He loves you just as, he loved Peter just as much after the denial as he did before the denial. He loves you and is patient with you as he ever was before, fill in the blank, before you got into the debt, before the addiction started. He loves you just as much now. Before the anger had a place in your life, he loves you just as much now. He's still being just as patient with you. Before the divorce, he loves you just as much as he did before that. Before the laziness, before the apathy, before whatever it is you're going through in life, fill in the blank. His love for you hasn't changed. We think he's gonna rebuke us and, 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 and be harsh with us, but really he's just starting a fire, putting some fish on the grill, preparing a table in the presence of whatever your enemy is. Whatever that is that's coming against you, whatever that is that's got you bound, he's saying, no, just come to the table. Just come to the table. Enter my presence with thanksgiving and praise. And when we understand his love, we won't be able to help but be thankful and to praise him for who he is. Love is patient. We see it in the life of Jesus. God is patient. 1 John 4, 17, you're gonna have this memorized by the time the service is over. It says, as Jesus is, so are you in this world. So leave here today and go be patient with yourself and others but we talked about this last week. You gotta start with yourself. Like that oxygen mask in an airplane, put it on yourself before you try to help anybody else. Be patient with yourself. Love yourself well. Look at yourself in the mirror and say, you got it. You messed up maybe, but get up and move on. You got this. Tell yourself what the word says about you, not what the mistake says about you. Be patient with yourself and give it to others. It's on the inside of you. 
Back to our text, love is gentle and consistently kind to all. God is gentle and consistently kind to all. The woman at the well was a Samaritan. There was a racial divide between the Jewish people and the Samaritans. There were people in these two communities that hated each other simply because of their race. That was the bottom line. Yet Jesus is at a well with a woman who didn't, was not a part of, of his group that he was born into, yet without even a moment, without even a, a moment of hesitation, he's kind and gentle to her, just like he has been to everybody else. She says, are you a prophet? And he goes, well, I am a prophet pretty much. And he says, I, let me prophesy to you. You're living with a man who is not your husband. You've had five husbands. And he, he tells her all her business and really none of it was good. But notice that she doesn't get up and run away. She doesn't slap him. She doesn't tell him he's a liar. She knows he's telling the truth, but there's something different about him telling this truth, right? We know that the truth sets us free. And in that moment, I believe she felt it. She knew there's something in his words. It's not condemning. It's not judgmental, but there's something about this guy that can set me free. Because, you know, kindness, which we just talked about, is not, we, I've, I've said this before too, so you might have heard me say it, but kindness is not always niceness, right? We can say love is kind, uh, but we can't say love is nice, right? Sometimes love is nice, but it's not always nice. Love also tells the truth, and sometimes the truth is not nice. If I got to look at you and say, hey, look, something's not right in your life right now. It may not sound super nice, but it is truth. It is actually kindness and will set you free. I got to be harsh with my kids sometimes because they have to understand I've been where you are. I've done this. I've made this mistake. You don't have to learn from my mistake. And I may not sound super nice to them in the moment, but it's actually kindness. The Bible says in Proverbs that if you love your children, you will discipline them. If you're not disciplining them, it's actually an act that goes against love, right? Love is not always nice, but it's always kind. So Jesus actually wasn't super nice to this lady. He didn't put his hand on her shoulder and say, oh, you're good. You're, you're living all right. I like you. You're, you're great. No, he said, you have some issues. But something about that truth set her free. He was gentle. He was being kind to her. And the whole town came and heard about the gospel at that point. They came and sat under Jesus, and kindness sets people free. And just like he was kind to her, I'm telling you, he is gentle. He is kind with you. God will, will tell you. They'll say, listen, let's get this thing straight, right? The Holy Spirit will, in the inside of you, say what you're doing here isn't right, and you know it. But it is not to make you feel condemned and to make you feel guilt-ridden. It is to remind you and invite you into freedom from that thing that's holding you back. God is gentle and consistently kind 1 John 4, 17 says that as Jesus is in this world, so are you. So leave here and be consistently gentle and kind. It is important and you can do it. Not because you're awesome, not because I'm awesome, but because the Holy Spirit in you is awesome. And it's the same Holy Spirit that was in Jesus. The same Holy Spirit that was kind to that woman at the well. The same Holy Spirit that called her out of that that sin, not called her out, right? But called her out of that sin is in you. Love refuses to be jealous when blessings come to someone else. 
Somebody asked me one time, why do people say that God is jealous for us if it says love is not jealous? Well, it's talking about different things. It's not talking about the Lord is jealous for our attention. You could use that word. He's jealous for our affection. You could use that word there. But this in 1 Corinthians 13 is talking about jealousy because of somebody else's success. Jealousy because somebody else has something that you want, right? Jealous that somebody else is, is maybe having some type of success that you're waiting on or that you're going after. Love is never jealous. How do we see this in the life of Jesus? Well, this is a good time to talk about the birth story. Jesus had a cousin who was born right around the same time he was. His name was John the Baptist. He was born to prepare the way for Jesus. And as Jesus was coming up and before he even started his own ministry, John the Baptist was in the wilderness drawing a crowd, saying things like, repent, repent because the time has come. And then when Jesus walked onto the scene, first of all, with no jealousy in his own heart, John the Baptist says, here is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Now I must decrease so he can increase. But at the same time, his cousin Jesus never said, you know what? My cousin John's getting all this attention. I know I got a ministry in my heart. I know I'm supposed to be talking to these same people he's talking to. No, instead, he went to John the Baptist and he says, I need you to baptize me. There was no jealousy between the two. They worked together and their ministries built upon each other. And as a believer, listen, I know I'm not the Savior and you're not the voice out in the wilderness or whatever, but we can learn from this because we all are ministers as believers. And part of your calling, even if it's in business, even if it's in uh, raising a family, even if it's in something that maybe the world doesn't label ministry, you are a minister because you have the Holy Spirit on the inside of you. You're just sometimes undercover, a little more undercover when you're walking into a nine to five. You're still a minister because of who you are in Jesus, because of who he is in you. But you never see either one of them operating in jealousy because love is not jealous when blessings come to someone else. When you see somebody else who's walking in a type of success that you also want, you got to remind yourself, they didn't take anything from you. There's plenty to go around. The call that you have on your life is unique to your life. Nobody else can take it. Nobody else can take it. It's unique to you. There's plenty to go around. The world needs you doing the thing that God has called you to do. So what do we do if we're not going to be jealous when blessings come to somebody else? Well, Jesus and John, we see them rejoicing at each other stepping into ministry. Rejoice when you see somebody out there and whether it's your mind or the devil saying, be jealous, Take that time to rejoice for that person's success. You got the same thing coming. The same God on the inside of you is the same God on the inside of them. He got them there. He's no respecter of persons. He'll get you there. Love isn't jealous. God isn't jealous. 1 John 4, 17 says that as Jesus is, so are you in this world. So go out today and refuse to be jealous when you see somebody else's success. Rejoice with them and watch that same victory begin to happen in your life. Love does not brag about one's achievements nor inflate its own importance. How do we see this in the life of Jesus? Are you telling me Jesus didn't inflate his own importance? He was the most important. I agree. He was the most important. What he did for us is the greatest gift anybody could ever give. But in John 14, 12, he says something amazing. I love it. He says, I tell you the truth. 
This is in red letters, right? So take this to heart. Some people kind of ignore this or they act like they don't understand it. This is something you just read it, right? Take it. This is Jesus talking. I tell you the truth. Anyone who believes in me, raise your hand if you believe in Jesus. If you're not raising your hand, we'll have an altar call, right? But raise your hand if you believe in Jesus. If you believe in Jesus, that means he's talking about you. Who believes in me will do the same works I have done and even greater works because I'm going to be with the Father. Most religions have a type of savior figure that if he doesn't say it with his words, then he says it with his actions or people build up this thing around this figure saying nobody could ever be as great. Nobody can do the things that this guy did. Nobody can, can, can do what Buddha did. Nobody can do what Muhammad did. Nobody can do what these prophets or these saviors did. Yet we have a savior that said, you'll do the things you saw me do, but even greater things. I'm not leaving you alone. Now you got, you got me on your side as your advocate in heaven, sitting by the right hand of the Father, interceding for you. I'm gonna put my Holy Spirit in you. Yeah, I did some great things, right? But you're gonna do those things too, even greater. That's amazing. Think about it. There's probably more miracles that are gonna happen in the world today than maybe Jesus ever physically performed in his three years of ministry. I don't know, they're not numbered. And I know we have the book of John and, and John says, if I wrote down everything I saw him do, there's not enough books in the world to contain it. I get it. But he walked around for three years in the flesh and however many miracles he physically performed, there is a number. We don't know it, but there's a number. And there's a body of Christ here on the earth today that is up in the millions. And I'm telling you, if you don't know this, miracles are real and they still happen. We have seen some in our own body this week. This last few months, we could talk about Chuck's back. We could talk about Margot getting healed from cancer. We could talk about miracles that have happened in our body this month, this week. The body of Christ as a whole, man, there are miracles. Hundreds, maybe hundreds of thousands that happen every day. Jesus, instead of inflating himself and saying, you'll never live up to what I've done. You'll never do these things I've done because I'm the greatest. His entire life in ministry, he got low and he served. And he told us the greatest is those that serve and get low. It shouldn't surprise us. He says, listen, guys, you're going to do what you've seen me do and even greater things. That's awesome. Love isn't boastful. It doesn't brag. God isn't boastful. He doesn't brag. First John 4, 17 says, that as Jesus is, so are you in this world. So get out of here today. Don't boast in yourself and your own good things that you've done or you've accomplished. Build others up even more. Man, tell them what they're doing good. Encourage somebody else with what they're doing and who they are. Love does not traffic in shame and disrespect, nor selfishly seek its own honor. I like that. And the New Living Translation is actually my favorite. It says love this, all that I just said is translated to this in the New Living. Love is not demanding. This is the one that knocks me off my feet every time because I've heard people preach with a sweaty brow yelling to the top of their lungs about how demanding God is. Yet in 1 Corinthians 13, it says love, God is not demanding. How do we see this in the life of Jesus? Well, his first miracle, he's at the party and his mama says, 
there's no wine. We need some wine. And Jesus says, lady, this is not how I want to do it. He says, my time has not yet come. This blows me away because God, Jesus is God. He was God. And God says to a human, yes, she was special, right? She gave birth to Jesus. She was, she was received the word of God and gave birth to the Savior. And she says, we need some wine. And God in the flesh says, this is not my way. And then he did it. He said, this is not my will. And he did it. He said, this isn't how I wanted to start things. And he did it. He could have demanded his way. He could have said, no, this isn't right. This isn't how I want to do it. But he did it. It happened again in the Garden of Gethsemane. Right before he laid his life down. Being attacked probably by anxiety, right? I don't, I'm not, not from the inside. I'm not saying Jesus felt anxious, but he was being attacked. He has dealt with every, every temptation you have. It's just like we have been tempted to step into anxiety. He was tempted to step into at least anxiety, maybe even more. And he said, Father, that this cup should pass, yet not my will, but your will. And he wanted to lay his life down for you. He did it because of the joy that was set before him. He did it because he knew he could be with you and I for eternity. But there was a part of him that said, I don't want to go through this. But it's not about what I want. It's what you want, Lord. Love is not demanding. God is not demanding. Boy, I know I can be demanding. I say this a lot, and everybody laughs when I say it, but I mean it. I always think I'm right. I mean, are you like, you can raise your hand. You want to, somebody want to admit this with me? Like, you can admit it. It's okay. Look, like, I don't think I'm wrong. Like, I don't make decisions because I think they're wrong decisions. Let's be honest. I'm like, all right, I've processed this. I've thought about it. I think I'm right. And I can be very demanding. But you know what? Sometimes you don't got to do it the right way. It's just that simple. Sometimes you don't got to do it the right way. When is that a good thing to do? Well, if doing something the right way is bringing strife into your home and into your life, it ain't worth it. James 3.16 says that where there is envy and strife, there is confusion and every evil work. It's that simple. That's why marriages end, because you invite so much strife into your marriage. You invite strife into relationships, and relationships end, because it is an open door. You are opening the door to every evil work when you allow strife or envy in your life. So when is it worth being right, but stepping aside and saying, it doesn't matter if I'm right, let's do it this way. It's not worth it. If you could see a balance, it's, should I do it right or should I let strife in? Neither. Wait, how do I say that? Should I do it right or should I not let strife in? You should not let strife in. It weighs remarkably more than doing something right. And Lisa said, amen. <laughs> and Ava said, amen, even more. My, my wife and my daughter, front row. Am I preaching to myself? Yep. She didn't even hesitate. But I'm saying it. I do think I'm right all the time. And it's not worth it. Not worth strife. Love is not demanding. God is not demanding. Guess what 1 John 4, 17 says? It says that as Jesus is, so are you and I in this world. If he's not demanding, where do I get off walking around being demanding? Why do I lift myself up so high and mighty? Higher than God himself. You think you're higher than God? Well, you might if you walk around demanding your way all the time. Because he didn't and he doesn't. Man, that's good. That's really good. Right? 
He doesn't demand his way, and that's a good thing. You don't have to either. Love is not easily irritated or quick to take offense. Man, that goes a lot hand in hand with demanding your way, right? Love is not easily irritated or quick to take offense. You can choose to not be irritated by things. You can. It might take some time. It might, it might be a fight at first within yourself to begin to choose to not let the things that irritate you irritate you, but you can do it. Can you do it on your own? I don't know, maybe. But the good news is, if you raised your hand and said, I believe, you're not on your own. You got the Holy Spirit on the inside of you, and you can choose to not be irritated by the things that normally irritate you. It's that simple. Where do we see this in the life of Jesus? Everybody else said these kids are getting rowdy. Family worship day is too crazy. We shouldn't have the kids doing front flips. That kid's going to poke that kid's eye out with the flag. Everybody says, stop the children. Jesus said, let the children come to me. He can heal the eyes if they get poked out with a flag, right? That's kind of his business. Healing. We've never had that happen. We have had people get hit with flags, though. Swords. We, we, we had somebody bring a sword to the front one time. We asked him to put the sword away. Yeah, it was that. I'm actually serious about that. He was swinging it. He brought it. was like, man, whew, before we had security team, we need to get that sword guy out of here. <laughs> Love is not easily irritated. Jesus said, let the children come to me. How about the time he's preaching and all of a sudden the roof starts to, I don't know, something loud up on the roof and he's still preaching. And then all of a sudden you see some, something, some brush or some, 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 Stuff from the roof begins to fall in the middle of the crowd. And all of a sudden, there's a hole in the roof. And there's two guys up there lowering a third guy on a bed into the prayer meeting, into the teaching. And you know what he does? He heals the guy. He doesn't say, this isn't the right time. He doesn't say, get off the roof. I've actually heard somebody, they were very passionate. It was kind of weird. They're very passionate about the fact that they believe that was Jesus's house, right? Uh, I don't know if it was his house or not, where he lived, but... Let's imagine it was his house where he lived. Like somebody's cutting a hole in his roof and he just kept preaching and then healed the guy. Whether it was his roof or not, they were interrupting and he just healed him because love is not irritable and it's not quick to take offense. In fact, the word, the Bible, when you see the word offense in the Bible, it actually is the same word as the word trap. Did you know that? The word offense and the word trap are interchangeable. Why are they interchangeable? Because offense is your choice to be offended. That's a hard word for somebody. If you walk around offended all the time, it ain't them, it's you, right? So if you walk around offended all the time, it's you, and you are stepping into a trap every time. It's where the enemy wants you to be. It's where he wants you to be. He wants you to say, he, he, he's, he is as close as he can be to you, saying, isn't that irritating? Aren't you offended by that person? Aren't you offended by that phrase? Aren't you offended by that group of people? Aren't you offended by those politicians? Aren't you offended by that whatever? Fill in the blank. You'll see Jesus offended one time, and it was not at a person. It was at the devil. Peter, who was a person, says, hey, you don't have to die. We'll rescue you. We'll fight. And Jesus, knowing Satan was talking through Peter, looks at him and says, get behind me, Satan. Might have made it awkward at dinner that night. And Peter was like, hey, uh, can we talk about this? Did you, did you call me Satan earlier? Like, <laughs> did I hear you right? Like, you, you didn't say that, right? And really, he didn't. It was the spirit that was at work yeah. within Peter in that moment. 
was the spirit of the devil, spirit of the Antichrist, if you will, whatever it was. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. I'm offended at you. That's the only time you'll see offense, right? Well, you can maybe argue you see it in the temple when people have turned his, his house into a den of thieves. That was probably offense as well. However, it was again at the spiritual, the powers, the principalities, where he had authority over. If you're offended at someone made of flesh and blood, it is a trap. Stop being offended. Stop being offended. You're not going to be even be able to minister to that person if you're offended. You're not going to be able to reach that group of people if they offend you. That's a really good word for at least a majority of us in here. Man, if you're a human, a believer that walks around with love in your heart for people, God's children, yet certain groups offend you to your core so much, all you can do is talk trash about them and make fun of them, you are not going to reach them. You got to stop being offended by people if you want to reach them with love. Love is not irritated and it is not quick to take offense. We saw that with Jesus even at the well. We hear it in his story about the Good Samaritan. We hear it in all of his words. We see it in his actions. Love is not easily irritated or quick to take offense. God is not easily irritated or quick to take offense at you, me, or anybody else. And guess what 1 John 4, 17 says? As Jesus is, so are you in this world. So when you leave here today, begin to make the choice to not be irritated by those things and put away offense. Stop falling into traps. They are right in front of you. It's like seeing the bear trap and stepping into it. It's like seeing the hole in the ground and stepping into it. It's like knowing there's a trap behind door number one and walking through door number one. A fence is a trap. Don't fall into it. Two more. Two more and we'll be done with this. I was really hoping I could get through it. All right, I got my hopes up. Love joyfully celebrates honesty and finds no delight in what is wrong. New Living in King James say, love weeps at injustice. Love rejoices when the truth prevails. Let's use the story of the Good Samaritan. Jesus tells a parable. Again, part of this parable had to do with race, right? He, he makes it a point to point out that the Samaritan who fell into the hole was a Samaritan. He didn't have to say that. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, the Samaritan stopped and actually helped the person out of the hole. I'm sorry. So he made a choice to say that this person who several people in our community do not like because of a racial divide stopped to help this person. Who was the good neighbor? Who was the good person in this story? It pained some of those people to say, well, Jesus, the Samaritan was the good neighbor in this parable. But either way, it is injustice when somebody falls into a trap they didn't create, and it is justice to help them out. And here we are hearing Jesus tell this story, like, stop for justice. Stop to help people who are less fortunate than you. Stop when somebody got a bad rap and you have some power to help them. Man, maybe you can't fix everything in somebody's life, but you can recognize them. You can say, hey, I'm with you. I love you. How can I help? Whatever it takes. Whatever it takes to whoever you come into contact with. Listen, my pastor, Pastor Dean, he doesn't even leave his house without cash in his pocket because he gives money to every person he sees on the west side of Charlotte begging for money. He doesn't say, are you an addict? Are you going to buy drugs with this? Are you going to do this or that? No, he just gives people money. He says, how do I know? I'm not there to judge them. I'm there to help them. 
Now, I mean, you know, take that or leave it. But like there's ways we can step in people's lives instead of ignore them. And we can take part in love rejoicing when justice prevails. We can weep when we see injustice. If we don't know how to fix a situation, it's too grand for us. We can at the very least just weep with people and then rejoice in hopefully an answer eventually, whether it comes through us or somebody else. Love celebrates honesty, finds no delight in what is wrong. God celebrates honesty, finds no delight in what is wrong. 1 John 4, 17 says, as Jesus is in this world, so are you. So go out here, weep over injustice, rejoice when the truth prevails. And as we read this last one, I'm going to invite the band up. Love is a safe place of shelter. It never stops believing for the best in others. Man, I love this one. Love believes the best. Can you imagine God, right? Jesus has ascended. He's in heaven and they're talking and Jesus, God, angels, I don't know. They're like, hey, who's going to be the best missionary? Who's going to write? Like, like we're going to have a Bible eventually that people are going to read. Who's going to write most of the New Testament? Can you imagine? God's like, oh, you're going to love this. Saul, Saul's going to do it. Can you imagine the witness's response to that? What do you mean, Saul? The one that's killing Christians? The one that, like, hates everything about Jesus? The one that's, the one that, he's the reason Stephen is up here. He's the reason the first martyr was martyred. He's going to write two-thirds of the New Testament. He's going to be the greatest missionary ever. God, you got this one wrong. And God's like, actually, you don't see what I see in him. You don't see what I see in him. And then Jesus meets him on the road to Damascus. His life is changed because love believes the best. My mom is so good at this one. Pastor Diane has never said a bad word about any one of you. I promise you that. If you know my mama, she only tells me and Lisa and Pastor Will and Pastor Brittany how awesome every one of you are. And I listen. I try to listen every time. She does not see people's faults and failures. She looks at people and sees the best every time. She's done that with me and my sisters our whole lives, right? It didn't matter if it was something little, like a pimple on our face. Boy, she talked about how cool it was to have pimples, right? Like she was just good or something major. Man, we would go through things that were hard. She'd sit down and say, oh, this is going to make you so strong, you know? Like uh, mistakes we made. She'd sit down and talk to us about how that wasn't us. That's not the real you. That's what I do with my kids. Love sees the best. God sees the best in you and in everybody else. After Peter denied Jesus three times, what did Jesus see? Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Do you love me? He still saw him the same. He saw the best in him. Love sees the best in others. God sees the best in others. 1 John 4, 17 says that as Jesus is, so are you in this world. Let's say that together. As Jesus is, so am I in this world. Now you know what we're going to say. Let's say it again. You ready? As Jesus is, so am I in this world. One more time. As Jesus is, so am I in this world. Where is that at? Anybody know? 1 John 4, 17. Let's say that together. You ready? 1 John 4, 17. I did lie. I said there was one more. There's one more. Love never takes failure as defeat. It never gives up. We see it over and over in the life of Jesus. Your failures are not failures when you involve the Lord. 
It's just the truth. Romans 8, 28 says, according to the power at work within you, he can take all things and work them for your good. I mean, we see this through the life of Jesus over and over from the very beginning. There's no room at the end. Didn't stop him from being born. Mary and Joseph and Jesus had to live as exiles in a foreign land. Didn't stop them from raising the Savior. Didn't stop him from learning the word. He astounded the priest and the teachers at the age of 12 with his knowledge of what the word of God said and who God was. Jesus wasn't accepted in his own hometown. And the Bible says because of people's familiarity with him, that's just Jesus, the son of the carpenter. That's just Jesus, the kid that lived down the street. That's just Jesus that used to come over and play with our kids. It says because of that, he couldn't do many miracles in his own hometown. But that didn't stop him from going around and working miracles and dying for you and dying for me and raising from the dead. Failures were never failures in the life of Jesus. What looked to be the greatest failure, being nailed to a cross, what else can he do? He's lost. Was actually the greatest victory. I mean, it's the same in your life. Your greatest failures because of the Holy Spirit. Because as Jesus is, so are you in this world. Even the failures, even the bad ones, even your own mistakes, even the failed relationships, even the getting fired from a company because maybe you were the one that was wrong. The lost, I lost my temper. Whatever it is, your greatest failures don't have to stay that way. They don't have to be failures because love doesn't fail. God doesn't fail. And 1 John 4.17 says, as Jesus is, so are you in this world. You are not a failure. And the only way any of this ends in failure is if you quit. But God is so good, even if you quit, you get to be with him in heaven and you win in the end. But you don't have to wait until then. You don't have to wait until then. Like David, you can declare and you can see the goodness of God in the land of the living. You don't have to wait to the land of the after living, <laughs> afterlife, whatever you want to call it. It's really all one life, right? The only thing that ends is our body. And honestly, when it does, we'll probably be glad it does. It will be free like we've never known before. But your failure, maybe it's your fiery furnace we talked about last week. When you come out of it, whatever bound you up and took you there is going to burn off and you're going to walk out with more authority than you ever walked in with. Love doesn't fail. God doesn't fail. That means you don't. If you're breathing, it's not the end. If you're here this morning, it's not the end. Amen? Let me tell you, when we understand just how vast and unconditional the agape love of God is. Well, next week we're going to talk about peace. But you won't be able to help but walk in peace. Let's all stand together. You know, one of the things I'm going to get into next week talking about peace is something I didn't think I was going to get into till the new year. But I want to go ahead and tell you this, this phrase that I really heard the Lord say. 
the Bible says that we can have peace beyond understanding. Is everybody familiar with that verse? This is what the Lord has been showing me. We forfeit that peace when we try to understand. Does that make sense? We can operate in peace beyond understanding. When do we step out of that peace? When we try to figure it out. When we try to understand. Or maybe there's a more holy version where we're like, God, you got to figure this out. But either way, when you're trying to figure it out, you have not settled into that peace beyond figuring it out. And I'm telling you, how do you do this? It goes back to understanding and believing God's great love for you. There's been so much bad teaching and wrong teaching in the church where people like talking about the hellfire and the brimstone and that God's out to get you. And if you mess up, he's not going to bless you and then get out of here. You're a reprobate. You're no longer loved by God. You've lost your salvation or whatever junk that stuff is. It's messed people up. Who's going to walk in peace thinking that God who sees all is not only seeing all, but he's recording all the bad things to throw in your face one day to send you out into an eternal abyss. That's not our Father. That's not our God. Listen, we're all headed to this eternal abyss, this bad thing on our own. He stepped in and rescued us. He's our rescuer. He's our Savior. And when we understand how much He's on our side, we stop trying to figure it out. We stop trying to, to map it all out. And then we're free to operate in peace beyond understanding. So that's why I pray that today, if you've never had a revelation on the love of God, you got one. Go home this week and read 1 Corinthians chapter 13 over and over again. Look into the life of Jesus and know that the way he treated people is the way he treats you. That love you see him responding to everybody with, that is still how he responds to you. It's good, good news.